the scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like a living stone, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe he is precious, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and the stone that makes them stumble, and the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who call out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Thank you, Kweku. Let me add my welcome to those of Quinn from just a few moments ago. To all of you for whom this might be your first time here at National, our warmest greetings to you in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that extends to those of you who are joining us online as well. Uh, we look forward to the day when we might continue to grow in numbers so that we can see each other face to face. But in the meantime, we are grateful for the many laborers who have made these extended opportunities available to us. Well, as most of you know, at the conclusion of our service this morning, we will hear an important update from our pastor nominating committee. As we get closer to welcoming our new senior pastor, I've thought a lot about this process and it occurs to me that one of the best gifts that we as a congregation could offer as a welcome to our new pastor is a shared and deeply biblical vision of what it means to be the church. That in itself is a good enough reason to be reading and thinking about this little letter from Peter as he addresses churches in Asia Minor who are under great pressure to compromise and to fold, who look at their future with a certain amount of nervousness. And this morning's text that was just read for us is rich in helping us toward that shared vision. 
how might one think about the church? Well, some think of the church as sort of an institutional relic, something that is part of the cultural landscape that seems largely irrelevant in these days in light of the requirements of life in the real world. Others of us might think of the church as a cost-benefit analysis. For a lot of us, we do that kind of thing in our work. It's understandable that we might orient ourselves to everything in our lives by the same way. By that, I mean we tend to evaluate things in terms of their benefit to us. So we might go home on a Sunday morning and ask ourselves in consumer terms, what did I get out of that? You might be thinking, boy, Alan was just not on his game this morning. Or, wow, I love it when Todd plays Anton Bruckner. <laughs> Those are consumer questions. You might remember a couple of months ago, I suggested that a far better question to ask, at least as a first question in your lunchtime evaluation of your Sunday morning experience, is not what did I get out of it, but rather, how did I do? Did I offer my whole heart and mind in worship to our great and loving God? It's a far better, more deeply biblical, and more mature question to ask from the people of God. Then there are also those of us, most of us who are here this morning, I hope, who think more positively about church as a place, an opportunity to worship the triune God who has redeemed us, who loves us, who calls us to love him back, invites us into his life to grow into maturity, as Peter says here in verse 3. Worship and life together with the people of God. That's the place to do just that, to grow, to become more mature, to follow in the way of Christ. Now maybe you recognize yourself in one of those three very brief sketches I've just laid out. Maybe not. But I think it's worth evaluating our understanding and our assumptions about church so that we can then compare them to the vision of the church that is laid out for us throughout Holy Scripture so that we might be, first of all, taught where our education has left us deficient, where we might be corrected, where we need such correction, and where we, need, where we can find encouragement when our hope about the church is flagging. So this morning, as we look at First Peter, we have the perfect opportunity to consider this crucial question, what is the church? Peter asks us, as he addresses his audience in Asia Minor, to recognize three significant points about the identity of the church, which I will state in the negative so as to highlight the positive. The first is this. The church is not the world. Now, some people hear that and they think, oh, the church is spiritual and the world is material. No, that's not what I mean. The way the world is often used in the scripture is as a shorthand 
to describe competing authorities that are opposed to the purposes and the ways of God. Competing structures of authority that are opposed to the purposes of God. That's the way the scriptures would have us understand, instructs us to be in the world, to be engaged with the world because God loves the world and yet not to be of the world. And Peter follows his master in his instruction to those churches in Asia Minor. Did you notice, for example, in the text that was just read for us, Peter's description of his fellow believers? You are, he writes, associated with the one who was rejected by men, rejected by the world, but chosen by God. You were once in darkness, but now you have been brought into the light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And then in verse 11, I urge you as aliens and exiles in the world. Peter understands that the church can be in such a posture vis-a-vis -vis the world that it finds itself not at home and we feel more like exiles and aliens in the world. How have you experienced that in your own life as you've sought to be faithful to Jesus Christ? Peter's audience, being congregations under stress and persecution, needed no further proof of the fact that there was a fundamental difference between the church and the world. But would you know it by looking at the church today in the West? In fact, if you consider certain statistical evidence, it would encourage us to think that there's not much difference. The rate of divorce, for example, in the church is about the same as it is in the world at large. Sexual promiscuity among young and old is about what it is everywhere else. Church members in general seem to hang on to their money at about the same percentage as non-church members. And if you move away from statistical evidence to anecdotal evidence, it's not much more encouraging. Christians seem to be about as willing to sue one another as non-Christians. There always seems to be some story going on about division or news of a split in some church or denomination. And it seems like every day brings more news about some horrific pastoral indiscretion. And even theologically, the differences between church and world are seeming to fade. The church today in the West often seems only to mirror the same commitments as the ideologies of our politics. So it's understandable that to many observers, the church seems much too much like the world. But rather than point fingers and foment further division, we might ask, will we as the Congregation and National Presbyterian Church, take up the challenge. If we belong to God and not to the world, how ought we to live? How ought we to look? Scripture assumes that the church will look different from the world, but it does not assume 
that it will be easy. And the fundamental point at which the church differs from the world is that we aim to be a people who are laser-focused on living in such a way that God would be glorified and pleased. It's not that we look at the world and we say, how can we be different? Rather, it's that we look at the God that we have met in Jesus Christ and we say, how can we say thank you for bringing us from death to life, from bringing us from darkness to light, for redeeming us when we didn't have the good sense to know that we needed redeeming? We are to be a people who lives to the glory and praise of God. There's no need to romanticize it. The scriptures are clear that such a laser focus comes at quite a price. Nothing short of, says Jesus, death to self. Take up your cross and follow me. And we do that. We live to God's glory. We take up our cross in thousands of different ways and in ways that are very practical as practical as volunteering to join the usher team or to care for children in the nursery when it's not particularly convenient to our schedules they could also be more challenging things things like promising not to hold a grudge but instead to live in forgiveness remembering that the Lord said, you are to forgive as I have forgiven you. But in all things, Peter says, our aim is to declare with our lips and our lives the praises of him who has brought us from darkness into light. The church is not the world. We are to be drawn to the faithfulness of God and not to compare ourselves in a popularity contest with the world around us. The church is not the world. But the church, secondly, is also not simply a collection of individuals who have a certain spiritual understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Individualism is the presumptive philosophy of our current age. And we are only beginning to see the flowering gift of it in the disintegration of families and in our institutions. Individualism has a chip on its shoulder by its very nature, a commitment of the heart that demands no one is going to tell me what to do. Sometimes in looking at our own world, I think, well, we are acting like two-year-olds here, which is exactly what a two-year-old would say. No. I want it my way. Not surprisingly, the exercise of any kind of authority in our world is likely to be bitterly contested, and we see evidence of that every day, don't we? Because common submission to a shared authority in a world of individuals only goes as far as my own desires permit me to. But did you hear Peter? as he was describing his heart for these churches. Listen to the metaphors that he calls upon when he describes the church. You are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. 
What do each of those metaphors have in common? They are all plural. In other words, you can't be a church of one. You can't be a church of individuals. We belong together. To belong to God means to be submitted together to his purposes and then to be in common bond with all those who name him as Lord. There is nothing that can come between us that is more determinative than the prior bond that we have taken when we have said, Jesus Christ is Lord. That bond ought to be more powerful than anything that can come between us, those of us who profess loyalty to Jesus Christ. And so the scripture assumes that you cannot be a Christian without belonging to the community of other Christians, which is the church. John Calvin, reiterating the, wit the wisdom of the early church, insisted one cannot have God for one's father who does not also have the church for his mother. We belong together to God through Christ. And Peter says that we are to be a royal priesthood. What a metaphor. What does he mean by that? Well, in my experience, when a lot of Protestants hear the word priest or priesthood, they think Roman Catholic. But if that's what you think, then you are selling the scriptures far short. Remember, there was no Roman Catholic church when Peter was writing to the churches in Asia Minor. Instead, Peter thinks that all of us as Christians are part of a royal priesthood that all of us as Christians have a priestly role to play in our relationships with one another. Why? Well, think about it for a moment. How did you yourself come to Jesus Christ? Through the power of the Holy Spirit that opened your eyes to recognize that Jesus Christ was in fact who he claims to be, your Lord and Lord of the universe. In other words, what role did the Holy Spirit play in your coming to acknowledge Jesus Christ? It was a priestly role that the Holy Spirit played. And how do you come to know God as Father in the Scriptures, to be able to say as Jesus did, our Father, which we say every Sunday? How did you come to know that except through the priestly mediation of Jesus Christ? He priested us into relationship with his Father. And so you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all are involved in drawing us into life with Christ. And then we, in turn, are gifted by that same Holy Spirit to be priests to one another. And what does that look like? Well, let me give you a couple of case studies. Many years ago, I was in my office, and a gentleman I did not know very well knocked on my door and walked in. We talked for a while, and I understand from talking to lots of therapists that many times in conversation with somebody, you have to wait until you're almost out of time before you really actually get to the point. And that was the case with this man. We talked politely. I didn't know him very well, so it was easy to ask him about his family and all kinds of other things. And still, we got to the end of our time, and I said to him, 
Have you asked me what you wanted to ask me? Have you told me what you wanted to tell me? The room got very quiet, and then in a whisper, he said, I've come to the end of my rope. As it turns out, he was living a double life. It wasn't that anybody had found out about it, but he was in such inner turmoil. He didn't think he could live with himself. Why he sought me out, I don't know. But what began on that day was a friendship that lasted for decades. And I became his priest in the sense that I heard his confession. It's a great privilege to do that to hear his confession, and then to walk with him, to assure him of the possibility of forgiveness, to talk with him about what it meant to walk into that forgiveness. The thing is, you can do that too. You don't have to wear a stole. In the economy of God, everyone who names Jesus Christ as Lord has a priestly function in the world. My friendships have been a case study of this in my own life. Every significant movement of the Holy Spirit in my life has been brokered through friendships. And looking back on those friendships, I understand that they were my priests in time of need. One other story. Three of us were coming back from a presbytery meeting on Interstate 40. It was a couple hours drive. We were passing a rest stop, and one of, our, one of the three of us, three pastors in the car, don't ask. One of them says, there's a rest stop coming up. Can we pull over? And sure. So we pulled over. But he didn't need the facilities. Instead, he said, there's a picnic table over there. Can we go sit down for a minute? So the three of us walked over to the picnic table and sat down. And then he said, I need to make a life confession. So there, under the pine trees on Interstate 40 at a rest stop, we sat for an hour and a half and listened to this man tell his life story. He needed to get it out. He wanted to talk about his own brokenness, brokenness where, that he as a pastor didn't feel like he had a lot of permission to talk about. And then the two of us, in a sanctified moment, and every time I drive by that rest stop, which is now closed, I think about that. I think about that moment. Because at the end of our time together, before we got back in the car, we prayed for our friend, and we had the privilege of saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Friends, again, this is a gift that's given to us by the Holy Spirit if we belong to Jesus Christ. You don't have to be of a certain priestly class. You don't have to be a pastor. We can, in our friendships, if we are willing to be Christian friends, understand that there is a priestly function to friendship. And that is why Peter here uses this metaphor, that we can be priests to one another because we bear responsibility to our brother or sister to love them, to pray with them, to encourage them, to greater godliness, and they to us. To use each one of the gifts that are represented by each one of you this morning for the upbuilding of the common good. And the question that presents itself to each of us is, are you willing to explore 
what it means for you to take your place in this fellowship as a living stone in the temple which God is building. A friend of mine once told me, he said, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. But in the New Testament, God has his people as his temple. In other words, God indwells us, not because we are in this magnificent building, but because we are a body of believers drawn together by a shared allegiance to Jesus Christ. And in us together, there dwells the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus saying, wherever two or more are gathered, there I am, right in your midst. The church is not the world. The church is not simply a collection of individuals. And finally, the church exists not for itself. Archbishop William Temple said, the church is the only organization that exists for the well-being of its non-members. The church does not exist for itself. Granted, in a day that feels threatening, where the cultural shifts and changes seem to be unfamiliar to us, the temptation then is to create a safe haven where we exist for the sake of our own safety and maybe a few of our friends. It's a bomb shelter mentality. That certainly would have been tempting for Peter's churches. But no, instead they were told to live an evangelistic life. Live such good lives, Peter writes, among the pagans, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Or again, you are a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here, Peter, you see, is extending the priestly metaphor beyond the congregation and into the world at large. The church as a body demonstrates in the way that we love each other and in the way that we live in the world, the loving invitation of our Savior to taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter writes in prelude to the text we saw this morning, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, then live this way. We don't exist for ourselves. We've been given a gift in Christ that is to be given away again and again and again. It is the gift of relationship with the living God. And we too, like my friends, can be brokers for others into an encounter with the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And be assured of this. If that gift of relationship with God is not shared, then it becomes like manna that was given to the Israelites in the wilderness, whereas they attempted to hoard it, it spoiled. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is another text that would be worthy of spending some time to memorize, to put it in your heart. It's so central and so rich in its metaphors about who we are to be as the people of God here at NPC. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. 
here for declaring his praises. A friend of mine who grew up as the son of missionaries in Korea has for the last 10 years or so annually gathered together leaders from the church in Japan, in China, in Taiwan, and Korea. Of course, they have their own history, each with the other country. And their first order of business was to reconcile with each other and to submit their past hurts to their shared lordship in Jesus Christ. But as a part of his work, my friend has also been one of a number of, a small number, a very small number of Christians who have, with government permission, been allowed to visit North Korea. And after one of those visits, he told me something about the desperate nature of life there in that closed country. And he said that people are risking their lives to leave, but they can't go south to South Korea. So they instead are finding their way westward into China. And those refugees are being told as they embark on that dangerous journey, look for a building with a cross on it. There are people there who will help you. So you see, Chinese Christians are risking their lives even further in order to help others in the name of Christ. NPC doesn't exist on the border of North Korea and China. But in so many other ways, every single one of you inhabits that borderland, that liminal space between you and the other person, between one heart and another. You stand every day at border crossings with your neighbors, with your colleagues, with your institutions. And every single one who names the name of Jesus is called to display the cross in the way that you live, to live, if you will, cruciform lives, conform to the way of Christ. Quinn, a little while ago, spoke with our children about another dominant metaphor in this passage, that of Christ as chief cornerstone. We all know that Dwight Eisenhower laid the cornerstone here at MPC but I'm confident that every single one of us dare not confuse the former president with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is that cornerstone for MPC, upon which all of our lives are built. We have been called out of darkness and into light. Once we were not a people, now we are the people of God. Once we were without mercy, and now we are called full of mercy. So we exist in the same way as those Chinese Christians to point others to safe haven, new life and light in Jesus Christ. It might be as simple as taking a neighbor a meal. You might invite that neighbor to join you in worship or in a small group. If you're a young person, you might invite a school friend to hang out with you. Maybe invite Kyle or Kristen to come along. You might simply get to know someone's name. 
You know, in our impersonal world, you wouldn't believe how small acts of kindness open doors to deeper conversations. I have this experience every time I walk from my apartment up to the church on Wisconsin Avenue. I make a point of trying to look people in the eye. Most people don't. They're in a hurry. They're afraid. They don't want me to ask them for money. <laughs> to look people in the eye and to smile. And I can tell you that I have witnessed transformations on Wisconsin Avenue in a split second when somebody else opens their face in a smile. It's that simple. So far have we gone down in our current culture. I know we're surrounded by people every day. We're on trains, we're on subways, we are walking down hallways that are full of people and it's just not practical to smile at every person you see, I know. Just try it one time this week. In the name of Christ, look someone in the eye and say good morning. I guarantee you, you will be surprised by the response. I'm not saying which way it's gonna go. But the question is this, how can we be living invitations to others so that they too come to build their lives on the chief cornerstone? In all things, large and small, Peter wants those churches to be to the praise of God through Jesus Christ. And I know that you share that desire that the triune God might receive glory in our worship, in our life together, and in our witness to the world. And may your new senior pastor be surprised to find a people who understand themselves in just that way, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, who understand that above all else, we live each day with an awareness that we have been brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so I say to you, friends, shine. 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 Let's pray. Visit us with your Holy Spirit, O Lord, so that the power of these metaphors are internalized in our own lives and understanding. That our hearts would leap at the invitation to gather with others before your word and at your table. To give thanks for the way that you have, that so make us shine before the world that others might see us and through us see you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.